electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, the Afghan government falls to the Taliban and global politics shift. CNBC's Dan Murphy in the Middle East. Some describing this as a Vietnam moment for President Biden and at the same time, an embarrassing end to America's longest war. And former State Department official Evelyn Farkas. The fact that we needed more time and we needed to give the Afghans a sense that we were still going to be there for them in some fashion because ultimately they lost confidence, political military confidence. Here at home, a return to the workplace, or maybe not. Professor Sadal Neely of Harvard Business School. The idea that people have to be in the office for them to progress on their work has been debunked in the last 18 months. Those stories, plus a couple of teas, Tesla, and avoiding a taper tantrum. The Fed reacts to a recovering economy. CNBC's Steve Leisman. At first, they thought inflation would be transitory, and then they thought it would be transitory. And now they think it's transitory. It's Monday, August 16th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Kelly Evans. Joe and Andrew are off today, but we are joined for the morning by Stephanie Link. Of course, she's chief investment strategist at Hightower and a CNBC contributor. And ladies, welcome to both of you. This is our own version of Squawk View today. And I'm thrilled to be here with you guys. Good to see you. Likewise. Let's take a look very quickly at what's been happening. First up today on the podcast, Taper Talk, Taper Timeline, Taper Tease. Hmm, we'll see. For months, more than a year, since the scary early days of the COVID-19 pandemic last March, the Federal Reserve has been involved in extraordinary, very long-term emergency measures to shore up the U.S. economy. The Fed has been buying about $120 billion a month in Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities, and Fed Chair Jay Powell has been saying that rate will continue until two goals of recovery are met, full employment and around 2% inflation. Here's Powell in June. We will taper when we feel that the economy has achieved substantial further progress, and we will communicate very carefully in advance on that. We will do what we can to avoid a market reaction, but ultimately when we achieve our macroeconomic goal, we will taper as appropriate. Powell has generally been more dovish than some members of his committee. He's been watching closely the inflation data all year and in any public comments said he expects price increases to be temporary. Another T word, transitory. He said this to the Senate Banking Committee in July. We're experiencing a big uptick in inflation, bigger than than uh, many expected, bigger than certainly than I expected. And we're trying to understand whether it's something that will pass through fairly quickly or whether, we're, in fact, we need to act one way or the other. We're not going to be going into a period of, of high inflation for, for a long period of time because, of course, we have tools to address that. 
But there's news today that at the Federal Reserve, the door is open to announce in September next month a decision to taper its asset purchases and then after that announcement, start to reduce bond buying soon after, easing in. We've heard about the taper for months, right? It's not cutting off the spigot. It's reducing that $120 billion a month to $110, maybe $105. And interviews with officials show that this faster timeline follows the data, the strong jobs report of the last two months, and higher inflation readings. CNBC's Steve Leisman has this new reporting. Okay, so let's talk about where the Fed has been to this point. The reason maybe they've been reluctant to start any sort of talk about pulling back, about tapering, and maybe that all ties back to 2013, but the, the taper tantrum that we saw back then, that was when Bernanke said, okay, maybe it's time to start pulling back some of this, and the market really pitched a fit. It, it, it feels like it's a very different scenario this time around. I think that's right, and I think the Fed knows that, Becky. I think if you look at the idea that uh, we've been talking about taper for, I don't know, three months now as something that the Fed is talking about. The Fed has acknowledged talking about it at June and July meetings. Uh, Powell has said they're going to talk about it some more. The, the, the talk of the taper is out there. You can't avoid that. And the market has already reacted with, I guess, some equanimity is the best way to put it. When I look at probabilities, what's fascinating here, Becky, is that the Fed wants one thing. It wants the market to divorce the idea of tapering and rate hikes, that those are two separate things on two separate tracks. And it looks like that's the way the market's reacted. Since the taper talk's been out, the market's been relatively up there. Uh, Bonds have been volatile, but yields remain relatively low. So I think part of the reason why we're getting more signals that the September announcement is possible is the Fed feels like it's overcome what was really the issue number one with the taper was avoiding the tantrum. That looks to be off the table, maybe at least for now. Let's ask Stephanie Link about that. Stephanie, you're somebody who's playing in the market every day. What do you think? Is this different than 2013? Well, I think it is because I think the economy has really rebounded quite nicely. I mean, let's remember, why are they tapering? Why are they talking about tapering? Why are they going to eventually raise rates? And that is because the economy is actually more than on the mend. Um, We got the CPI and PPI last week. They were hot. But beyond that, the non-farm payroll numbers were great. Wages are up 4% annualized. Savings rate is 10 to 12%. The consumer is in good shape. I know the confidence numbers were disappointing last week. I'm looking at the weekly confidence numbers, though, that were better than the University of Michigan. Um, We had good initial claims. And then the one thing that I look at, which is a leading indicator on earnings and CapEx, are new orders in the ISM. And they've been north of 60 for 13 consecutive months. So I, I think we can taper. I think we can actually also raise rates eventually, right, if they do it methodically and they communicate well. But this is a this is a big surprise, that this is a real reversal. And I would just ask Steve, is it that they've changed their view about inflation being transitory? I've said it's not all transitory. Part of it is, but wages and shelter costs are not. But so, Steve, have they changed their mind on the inflation narrative? I, I think the best way to talk about the Fed's change view on transitory is this. At first, they thought inflation would be transitory, and then they thought it would be transitory, and now they think it's transitory, which means that I think they believe that the inflation problem is probably going to linger into next year. And if you think, listen to the rhetoric that's happened, oh, we'd be clear by the fall. Oh, we'd be clear by next year. Now what we're hearing is some folks think, well, you know, sometime into next year. So I think that lit a fire underneath them, Stephanie, the idea that the producer price index came in strong, and that spoke to price pressures down the road. 
Um, plus, as you said, those two strong jobs reports that, hey, we're on the way. And if we get another one in August, um, another strong jobs report, that's going to really clear the, uh, the, the landing field for the Fed to take off. Steve, if you had to put a bet on it at this point, I, I, I know as recently as a week ago, you didn't think they'd do this at, at Jackson Hole, but this kind of changes everything too, right? Well, let, let's be clear about the process here, because that's going to be important for setting market expectations. The Fed technically can't do anything at Jackson Hole, right? They, they, they could actually have an emergency meeting, but that's not where, what they're going to do. Not that they're going to do. It's, gonna just, it's hard to not talk about Jackson it. Hole. Right. And it's hard to not they discuss They will talk this. about yeah. it. Right. They will talk about it. But, but actual taper requires a meeting, and they have to make a vote. And, and you'll notice that the tapering is part of the statement. That means it's, yeah. right. it means, that means it's part of the actual um, uh, responsibilities of the Federal Open Market Committee. So that meeting is in mid-September. And that's now where expectations point to when that taper will be announced, perhaps beginning in October, perhaps beginning in November. News breaking in just the past half hour, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, is launching an investigation into Tesla's autopilot program. Philippo joins us with the details and more. How big a deal is this, Phil? Uh, It's a big deal, Kelly, because this is a formal investigation that NHTSA has opened looking at Tesla's autopilot system. The agency says it has identified 11 crashes involving Tesla models uh, where the autopilot system failed to identify emergency vehicles or emergency signage on highways. Those 11 crashes, according to NHTSA, uh, were linked with 17 injuries and one death. This covers models S, X, Y, and 3 from 2014 through 2021. So what happens next? The formal investigation could take months, likely will take months. And at the end of that investigation, what typically happens is that NHTSA sits down with an automaker and they say, look, here's what we found. We can go one of two ways here. If we believe, if NHTSA believes that there is a defect or something wrong with a particular part or system in a vehicle, they will say to the automaker, let's see what, how you can correct this, issue a recall here. If the automaker says, you're wrong, we disagree, then NHTSA will have to go to court to say to a judge, we believe that this automaker should be compelled to recall these vehicles or this particular part or this particular piece of technology. But we're a long ways from that. They're just now formally opening this investigation. But the significance here is that NHTSA, over the last five years, has essentially been asleep at the wheel when it comes to regulating uh, vehicle safety. There have been people within the U.S. government who have said, look, these guys need to be much more diligent, at least looking into situations, not just with Tesla, but with all automakers. And now that you have uh, NHTSA now opening a formal investigation into the autopilot system, this will give us a sense of really what errors might be in there, or if, in fact, this is a case where there's not a problem with the autopilot system. So it's the first time that we've had NHTSA saying, okay, we're going to formally investigate what's been happening with these crashes that have been reported. There have been 31 investigations that NHTSA has responded to, or incidents that NHTSA has responded to. And so now... They'll open this formal investigation. By the way, we have not heard from Tesla. Not a surprise. Remember, they disbanded their media relations department. But you can bet that at some point we'll likely hear from Elon Musk, likely on his favorite venue, Twitter. uh, And that's uh, what we're waiting to see, guys. Hey, Phil, is there any reason to think that that other automakers should should be concerned about this, too? Or is there such a significant difference in, in, in what GM and others actually require in terms of checking to make sure that you are paying attention? 
They're different systems, Becky. So I think the auto industry in general will look at this and they'll say, well, the importance here is that you have the federal government, the investigators who are going to formally come out and say, here's what works, here's what doesn't work. Look, they may end this and say there's not a situation with the Tesla autopilot technology. Or they could come back and they could say, we think A, B, and C are situations or pieces of the technology that need to be refined, worked on, etc. And that's, I think, the significance here. All the automakers are going to be watching this closely. There's no doubt about that. Phil, thank you. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is calling for a crackdown on fake COVID-19 vaccination cards. He says federal officials, including the FBI, need to stop the flow of fake cards coming from overseas. There are now people are manufacturing and selling fake COVID cards, even though it's a crime. And this is incredible. Some people, rather than get the vaccine, which is free, are paying money for a fake card and risking prosecution because it's against the law. Who could be that dumb? Schumer's demands follow a report by the Associated Press that explained how people are cheating the system and causing concern at universities that require proof that students actually receive the vaccine in order to attend classes this fall. I don't know. Got an idea on this, guys? Maybe come up with a better system than a cardboard piece of paper, you know, that we fill things out on? I don't know about you guys, but mine, when I got it, I thought, I better not lose this. I've taken pictures of it. I know. You can't vaccinate it because you want it to be there, but I did seal it up immediately. But still, why don't we have a a national system that actually keeps track of this, or at least a statewide system that keeps track of these things? I mean, we've been asking these questions since the pandemic broke, right? Why the, The failure of any kind of, like, central, you know, but to the point Schumer was making that I think, you know... When he says, why are people paying money to get a, a fake card instead of the vaccine? No, it's not the cost of the vaccine that's holding people back, you know? So I, I just think you've got to speak to where people are on this issue, and it's not a cost thing. Yeah, no, it, it's not a cost thing, obviously. It's there are people who are opposed to being told what they have to do with these things. But yeah, how about, how about a better system and tell, instead of telling the FBI to stop people from making printouts and copies of those printouts? Right, exactly. And I think Apple in their latest, you know... I, they're trying to add the capabilities for us to ultimately be able to have our driver's licenses or whatever in that wallet. And a vaccine, you know, type of card is an obvious next step. Yeah. Um, although- I mean, we have technology capabilities to do this. The right. fact that it's not getting done just speaks to the lack of execution, right? Yeah. yeah. Or, again, people's holdups about it. You yeah. know, there's a certain segment who goes, great, you make it easy for me to get that. But, you know, is that a liberty issue? Next on Squawk Pod, Evelyn Farkas will be our guest, former State Department official, and she's a longtime proponent of withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan. If the Taliban were going to prevail, we were going to have to leave. The question was how much stability could be negotiated at the end of the day in Afghanistan? How much room for human rights observance on the part of the Taliban might have been negotiated? Where the global community and all its key actors go from here. That's right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You are listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC, today with Becky Quick and Kelly Evans. Here's Becky. 
Afghanistan's president fleeing the country yesterday ahead of Taliban fighters entering the capital of Kabul as the group rapidly expands its control in that country. CNBC's Dan Murphy joins us right now. He has the latest on that. Well, Becky, make no mistake, we are witnessing a historic moment in Afghanistan near two decades after the U.S. withdrawal. Uh, what's interesting is, of course, the situation at Kabul airport right now, where we're seeing reports of mass gatherings on the ground, Afghan citizens ultimately attempting to flee the country. Uh, what we've seen is vision on social media showing scenes of total desperation. This is people clamoring around a moving U.S. Air Force jet, some holding on in desperation, you can see there, and others running alongside. We've also seen vision of people climbing on aero bridges and equipment in attempt to board flights. And earlier today, NBC News also reported that shots were being fired. So clearly, a worsening security situation on the ground in the capital, Kabul, which is now effectively under Taliban control. Becky, also stunning images emerging just in the past 24 hours from the presidential palace, where armed Taliban fighters were able to make their way inside the palace as the Taliban effectively took control of Kabul. That, of course, came after CNBC in the Middle East was able to confirm that the Afghan president had effectively left the building. Now, as that took place, we know the U.S. has also been working to protect and evacuate staff members at the U.S. embassy in Kabul. It's now been mostly cleared out, but President Biden has also moved to deploy more troops to protect American assets and personnel there, about 6,000 new troops, in fact. Of course, all of this coming as new questions circle about America's involvement in this 20-year-long engagement in Afghanistan, some describing this as a Vietnam moment for President Biden and, at the same time, an embarrassing end to America's longest war. Some key questions to ask here. How did the Western intelligence community ultimately underestimate the Taliban's ability to regain control of Afghanistan in such a short amount of time. And the other key question to ask is how are world powers now going to respond with an emergency session of the UN Security Council getting underway? No doubt we'll hear from world leaders out of that meeting. It's back over to you, Kelly. All right, Dan, thank you very much. Joining us now to discuss the developing situation is Evelyn Farkas. She was Deputy Assistant Defense Secretary in the Obama administration. Evelyn, it's great to have you here. What would you add from your experience in the Obama administration was your own assessment of the fragility of the situation in Afghanistan and the options on the table for exiting it? Right, Kelly. Well, first, from what I'm hearing and from what I know, having worked on Afghanistan actually starting from our invasion when I was a senior Senate staffer and um, was overseeing our special operations forces and our effort there in Afghanistan for the committee, and then in the Obama administration, obviously helping um, with the U.S. European Command and beyond that. Um, what I what we've known all along is that this wasn't going to be a victory. Um, you know that ultimately the Taliban had a lot of leverage, political and military leverage. So it was always going to come down to some kind of deal with the Taliban. So the intelligence community wasn't completely off because they had been warning that there might be a collapse. And apparently, according to media reports, you know, they said that that, that the Taliban now, more recently, they were saying would take over the government. The issue was the speed. And I think the reason they couldn't quite, you know, predict that was because political developments were changing on the ground and in Washington, right? I mean, basically, President Trump, when he left 
government had this crazy deal where it was unilateral between the U.S. government and the Taliban, no real role for the Afghan government, the legitimate internationally recognized government, and the withdrawal date was May 1st. The, the Biden administration came in and said, okay, we need more time, let's push it out to August 31st. But they started rapidly decreasing without clearly having a plan for what would happen next in terms of all the Afghans, in terms of the collapse of the government, in terms of the political military will of the fighting forces in Afghanistan. And that's, I think, what we missed. We missed the fact that we needed more time and we needed to give the Afghans a sense that we were still going to be there for them in some fashion because Ultimately, they lost confidence. Political military confidence for the non-Taliban Afghans melted away. Yeah, and obviously, you know, the Biden administration wants to say it's the Trump administration's fault and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, I think their own words, uh, Biden's are coming back to haunt him a little bit with the Vietnam references. Let me just ask you what happens now. So we are already seeing sort of political moves out of China that are saying they, you know, uh, I don't want to put it too uh, strongly, but they are kind of open to uh, the Taliban, you know, looking for a new direction for Afghanistan. My point being, as we look at the map here, um, there are many analysts who say China's ultimate, ultimate goal here is oil pipelines. You know, they could run an oil pipeline through Afghanistan, uh, all of a sudden be in the Gulf or be in some of the key Middle East oil producing countries, that there's obviously great mineral wealth in Afghanistan and that strategically uh, it gives them more uh, heft in the world which they've been seeking. So. How does this all end? Well, I mean, China may like a, you know, an oil pipeline, um, but it's an incredibly unstable territory to run any kind of construction and pipeline through right now. And the Chinese government is also very much worried about insurgent activity coming back into China from the Uyghurs who are, you know, who use um, force, who use terrorist um, tactics to get back at the Chinese government is to try to achieve some autonomy for the Uyghurs inside of China. So the Chinese government is worried about terrorism. All the neighbors should be worried about terrorism. Pakistan, first and foremost, we should be worried, of course, because we always knew there was a risk that, you know, the terrorist forces, whoever they were, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, et cetera, would use Afghanistan again as a staging ground. And Pakistan is a very unstable country next door with its own form of Taliban. The, two, the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan is really basically for terrorists, um, you know, open, open season. And unfortunately, you know, Pakistan is also a nuclear power, 160 nuclear warheads there, as well as nuclear material. Uh, we, the United States, never like to see a situation where that might be at risk. I mean, but the scenario you're painting is one where, you know, the U.S. sort of presence in Afghanistan as a balancing factor becomes very important. And obviously, uh, the administration's just voted with its feet and said, despite all the concerns that you're describing, they're gone. Right. And I think that the problem is, you know, look, again, the Taliban were going to prevail. We were going to have to leave. The question was how much stability could be negotiated at the end of the day in Afghanistan? How much room for human rights um, observance on the part of the Taliban might have been negotiated. We might have gotten more time to, to see what the Taliban would give the women. And I mean, of course, I'm not going to be Pollyannish about it. It probably wouldn't have been a good story. So ultimately, the women would, who were human rights activists and you know activists for women's rights probably would have had to leave Afghanistan. But we could have given them a little more time and space to do it safely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Evelyn, we really appreciate you joining us to talk about it this morning. Thank you. Evelyn Farkas.
cheese will be next. Still to come on Squawk Pod, we're all talking about it. Back to work. When? How? Several companies delaying a post-pandemic return to office again. Harvard Business School's Sadal Neely joins us. This idea that remote work is only here temporarily or an aberration is just not accurate. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Stand back, you buy. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Two, one, here, please. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Kelly Evans and Hightower Chief Investment Strategist and CNBC contributor Stephanie Link. Joe and Andrew are off today. The guys will be back tomorrow, but I am very glad to have the ladies with me this morning. So, ladies, thank you. Thank you. Facebook is the latest of many businesses that have pushed back in-person return to the office, joining Amazon and Lyft with the target date of at least January of next year before they start bringing people back. With us right now to talk more about it is Seedal Neely. She's a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. Her latest piece in The Wall Street Journal over the weekend was titled The Biggest Mistakes Bosses Will Make with Returning Workers After COVID-19. And the first mistake she lists treating their employees like children. Explain what you mean, Sita. Well, uh, the idea that people have to be in the office for them to progress on their work has been debunked in the last uh, 18 months or so with the remote work world, where people are asking for agency, they want flexibility, they want to manage where they work, from home sometimes, at the office sometimes, but not in this fully controlled autocratic environment. So I, I get that. And uh, it's definitely an employee's market right now. They, they tend to have a lot of power because there's flexibility. It's hard to find workers um, and it's hard to be able to convince people to come in and do some of these things. But, but the one thing I'd say is that might change in the not too distant future. And if it does, will, will there be a turning tide at that point? I mean, I, I, I would think that employers also have the issue with trying to manage people who have been allowed to work from home for the last 18 to 20 months versus those who have had to come in all of the time. And it it really does put an additional burden on the people who are coming in and and don't have any flexibility. You know, uh, the nature of work has changed. What, What COVID has done is it's accelerated the virtualization of work. So this idea that remote work is only here temporarily or an aberration is just not accurate. It's been accelerated. Work and digitally enabled work is what's upon us. So we're not attached to space as we need, as we had previously, nor time. So this enduring change is what employers need to understand and lean into. So it's not a matter of this is a temporary state. This is a matter of People have experienced, have seen, have felt things that they've never done before. And productivity has gone up in most places. I I wouldn't argue that. Yeah, I wouldn't argue against that. I I think you're right. I I think there were plenty of people who worked very well remotely and who who showed that maybe you don't need to commute into a city and spend two hours of your day um, uh, in travel and in transit every day. It's just that 
not everybody's work can be remote. And, and I think it does kind of point to that bigger divide um, between the haves and haves nots in some situations. In some sense, uh, yes. And remote work is not a panacea, which is why most organizations, even those that you cite earlier, are moving into a hybrid format that combines some remote, some in-person, so that people get the best of both worlds. And that's kind of the point where we're in right now in this evolution of work. We've seen Google and some others talk about how if you're going to move to a cheaper location and stay there and be remote all the time, maybe they're going to pay you less than they were when you were working in the Bay Area and having to come in. Um, Does that make sense to you or or the idea of of, of giving an additional bonus to people who are continuing to commute in? I mean, it's a carrot and stick sort of setup, but it it does cost more if you're commuting in every day. Well, uh, the labor cost uh, issue and the cost of living issue has been around for decades. This is how global organizations have done their calculus when they think about salaries. So to pay people uh, cost of living that's aligned with where they are makes complete sense. But organizations like Google have to also think about the cost of working. People are giving up real estate in their homes, broadband. There's a lot of cost that individual employees are taking on in order to work. So this is kind of a rebalancing act. As far as paying people to commute to come in the office, that's already embedded in the uh, cost of uh, living structure. What's missing today is the cost of working from your home. And we need to rebalance that. Are there some industries that are doing better with this than others, some regions that are doing better than others? I think some industries uh, like the tech sector are doing better than others because they have much more experience. That's the only reason, right? So they've been experimenting with remote work for a very, very long time. Cisco started in 1993. So this idea of uh, remote work is not only not new, there's a lot of uh, wisdom and insight that we have from decades of experience. It's just that the scale and magnitude has grown. HubSpot is uh, doing this phenomenally well. They were right up front uh, early January with their hybrid policies where they thought through not only how do you think about remote workers, but those who want to be digital nomads, want to work in different places and how a company can accommodate uh, flexibly as well for those who are not staying in the same state as the company. I guess it's a marketplace as well with all of these employers uh, competing as well. Sadal, thank you for your time today. We, we appreciate it. Stephanie, Kelly, want to thank you guys both for being here today. This is like uh, Charlie's Angels. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thank, thank you, you so much. And that's Squawk Pod for today, this Monday. Thank you for being here and listening whenever you do. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. All three will be back tomorrow on TV at 6 Eastern on CNBC and right in your ears in this podcast. Listen and follow Squawk Pod where podcasts are available. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.